Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. I'm Chris Kaufman, and today I am joined by a returning guest, my uh, most frequent and most listened to guest, very proud to say, Brian Kaplan, and we are discussing his new book, You Will Not Stampede Me, Essays on Nonconformism. Brian, welcome back to the show. Fantastic to return. This is a collection of essays. This is your, I think, fifth collection that's come out, and uh, I know there are a few more to come. So. Three. Three more to come. Awesome. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about what's next on the list on the queue coming up. But uh, for now, so this is a collection of essays all around the theme of nonconformism, and that touches a lot of different aspects of life. So briefly, what are the benefits of nonconformism, and do you think it's generally undervalued? I do think it's generally undervalued. Human beings are naturally highly conformist. Uh, you can just watch almost any kid I remember my younger son saying, I can't wear this jacket, it's puffy. People will laugh at me. Uh, in terms of what are the benefits, the main thing is that what most people think is often wrong and not helpful or hurtful. And by being a nonconformist, you leave yourself with the wiggle room to say, yeah, that may be what everybody else is doing, but I've thought about it. And no, I'm not going to do that thing. I mean, what's probably most notable is that human beings evolved in an environment where you're stuck with the same 20 to 40 people, roughly. In the modern world, though, it's this giant anonymous society, and yet we still have the same emotions that we had those thousands of years ago. And to a large extent, those emotions are just no longer functional. You really just don't have a practical reason to worry about what total strangers think of you, whereas in that world of 20 to 40 people, even if you were right and they were wrong, you probably don't want to make too strong of a point over it for fear of making them hate you. Whereas modern world, you want to wear shorts, nobody else is doing it, do it. It's safe to say that this advice is mainly directed towards modern people in the modern world. You're not advising the Amish unless to take off on Rumspringa. But if they're staying in their community, does this advice I mean, I mean, not apply? Honestly, if, if I did have an Amish guy or girl who came and asked me for some advice, I would say, get out. It's a crazy way to live. Come on. You don't want to do that. There's a whole wide world out there. You don't want to just live in the past by sent, you know, live centuries in the past in abjects who are not quite abject squalor, but definitely in extremely austere conditions and needlessly. So yeah, I would definitely advise them if they were the only people in the world to be a different story. But you know, a lot of what I would tell them is disaffiliate. You happen to get a bad draw and are living among a subculture of lunatics. Get out. My personal preferences in life agree with everything you just said, but something rebels in me when you say that to want to say, well, you know, if they want to live that way, it's, I don't know, it's the libertarian in me to each his own. But I don't feel that way about plenty of other subcultures. I don't know why the Am Amish maybe uh, provoke a little bit more sympathy in me than, than some others. I can see that. Again, remember, I'm thinking about a hypothetical where someone asked me for advice. Yes, yes. And when, by of... buying your book, they kind of have. Yeah, I mean, I'm not in the habit of giving people unwanted advice. Normally, I wait for people to ask. When I just speak or write, 
in a sense, you might say, I'm not checking with every human being on earth as to whether they want to hear what I have to say, but I'm just putting it out there. And if you don't like it, just ignore it or delete it. So that's the, my main defense is, you know, there's nothing unlibertarian about giving people advice. I mean, there's definitely not, there's nothing, nothing unlibertarian about even giving people unwanted advice. It's just free speech, you know, just to back up. The Supreme Court in one of its most mocked opinions talked about the penumbras of the constitution the unwritten, unstated things that are kind of associated with it. I do think this is a useful idea. There are a lot of things in what I call the libertarian penumbra, things like tolerance. You know, strictly speaking, you can be a highly intolerant libertarian in the sense of anyone who disagrees with me, I'm their enemy. I don't like them. I'm just like, well, I'm not attacking them. I'm not taking their stuff. So I'm still libertarian. And yet psychologically, it is very natural for someone who's libertarian to also have the attitude of, well, if it's just you doing your thing with your stuff, I'm not going to have too strong of an opinion unless maybe you're my kid or something like that or close friend. You're interesting in this regard. I, I don't remember if your essay about the value of cosmopolitan tolerance as a libertarian mm -hmm. value has mm -hmm. appeared in mm -hmm. one of your collections yet, mm -hmm. but that's a great one. And it's, and it's a very modest value compared to, I mean, objectivists or yeah. some extreme <laughs> left libertarians, people like the folks at the Center for a Stateless Society or like Lou Rockwell or Hans Hoppe, these are all libertarians with very elaborate, I think, yeah. e extraneous values that are pretty specific. Yeah. I think yours are much more modest and easily mm -hmm. acceptable and mm -hmm. common sense. You know, so the idea that all views are equally psychologically compatible with libertarianism is, I think, wrong. I think even given the hypothetical, you know, imagine the fanatical anti-Semite who's also libertarian says, look, I'm not going to lay a finger on any Jews, but I'm going to try to persuade them all to kill themselves. All right, strictly speaking, but still, you're, you're, you should seem crazy. And the idea that this desire to have a bunch of people be dead is going to not lead you to abandon libertarian principles uh, as soon as you get the first opportunity just doesn't strike me as plausible. Um, so I do say that it is wise for especially libertarians to mostly be tolerant of other people making decisions they think are foolish even. But like I said, there's and nothing wrong with offering advice, especially to people that want to get some advice. So part of the premise of this is maybe based on evolutionary psychology that, you know, we're we're wired to understand that the consequences of nonconformity and of ostracism are, are very grave indeed, living a miserable life or possibly death. And that's still in our minds, even though we don't live in that world anymore. So you advise nonconformists in general that that most of modern society's penalties for nonconformism are empty threats, uh, but that some are Mostly. not. Mostly. Yeah. So what are some important non-empty threats that nonconformists should be aware of? I mean, obvious ones are people that you interact with frequently. So your family, close friends, your job, your people that are co-workers, bosses. These are all people whose opinions do count and you do rely upon them. So I advise you to tread lightly there. The area where you've got the most latitude are total strangers, which is 99.9999999% of the human population and even more. Um, I also uh, specifically focus on education where I say this is one of the main things where our society is very rigid. Uh, see my book, The Case Against Education. And therefore, I tell people, look, if you're going to be a nonconformist, you're going to go and find what do I really have to do in order to get the right educational credentials so that I don't wind up cutting myself out of most kinds of high school employment. Even there, though, I do advise people to look under the hood and say, well, what do I really have to do? 
what do I really have to do? Like, does it really matter if I only do two years of the foreign language? Is that enough? Can I get away with that? And often it turns out that you can totally get away with that. And then if you think that it's a dumb rule, just do the minimum. Well, and my suspicion here is that maybe that's even overstated, especially for anyone who's thinking about or who's reading this book and, th- and thinking reflectively about what they can do to get get on in society. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems to me like there are numerous options for motivated and thoughtful people to earn a good living and get a good career without even a high school diploma. I, I think that probably a lot of most people who don't finish high school are not getting these things mm-hmm. for for other reasons. But I don't know, maybe I just have some examples in my head of people who I know who cleaned up their act after they were teenagers, never finished high school or certainly never finished college and have fine careers now. Uh, Is there something to that? Anything can happen. It's a huge world. But in terms of the data, that's really rare. I mean, I've sometimes had people who are doing educational startups say, well, I've got a program that works really well as long as you're willing to go and cold contact 30 different companies and sell yourself to them. Okay. And that's like one person in 10,000 who's got the psychological disposition for that. And then what about everybody else? If you are in this other category, great. I would say that I know a lot more highly talented people who gave up on school early and are just grossly underplaced and cannot break into the higher earning, higher prestige, and honestly, more fun occupations. Uh, doesn't mean it's impossible. I mean, during uh, during COVID, when there were labor shortages, I was telling people, strike now while the iron is hot, figure out what job you want, but don't have the credential for, and just try to talk your way into it. And I know a couple of people followed my advice and succeeded. I assume the people that followed my advice and failed didn't email me. You also advise nonconformists to not be too dogmatic, to give in a little bit rather mm-hmm. than completely go against the grain mm-hmm. when giving in is minor and the benefits are large, which is very sensible advice from an economist. In what ways do you think you've given in a little bit to get greater benefits? And I mean, the most, ob- the most obvious one is you know, I got a P- I got a PhD from you know, I went you know top you know top undergraduate school, top graduate program. Uh, so these are things that I just could not have done if I really drew a line in the sand. I had to be flexible on certain matters, and I was. Um, you know, also when I was a new professor, I. Those were the most way. So my dissertation was quite conventional, nothing very exciting. And then when I was a new professor, step one was just to publish that in somewhere or other. And only after I had four or five publications from the work that I did as a graduate student did I did then branch off and start doing the stuff that I really wanted to do. Uh, so the, uh, these are some of the main compromises that I would say that I've done. Was that before Let's- or after tenure? Oh, so you know, before. So basically, I spent about a year getting stuff in the pipeline that was just for my dissertation, where it was close to being publishable, needed a couple more months for each paper. And then once I had that, okay, now I've got a bit of insurance. We got an insurance policy. I'm going to get you know, three or four publications out of my dissertation. Now I can afford to do something that's more interesting to me. Uh, so there was definitely that. Obviously, every time that I found out what are the graduation requirements and did those. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I could have sat there saying, yeah, but why do I like, why do I need to do experimental astronomy? And aren't these experiments really pretty lame anyway? Like, if they come out the wrong way, we just fudge the results. So like, what is this even? Could have said that, but instead it's like, all right, well, here I am for experimental astronomy. All right, let's roll some balls down an inclined plane. <laughs> that shows why Mars is the way Mars is. What do you think your a- academic uh, schooling career would have looked like 
without these credentialing requirements? If there were no requirements or if I didn't do them? Well, I, I'm just, I take it that on average, I'm guessing that you you generally enjoyed your schooling experience on net. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah, I'm no? going to say no. Okay. I would say maybe I enjoyed 15%. Most of the time I was disgruntled. I was disgruntled in almost all of my high school classes, disgruntled in lower share, but still- I'm thinking of college and college graduate classes. school. Yeah, graduate school, I'd say I was disgruntled in 90%. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, like, like, so there's a pile of stuff that you have to get through in order to get your PhD in economics, most of which you never need to know again. And I thought it was stupid at the time before. I thought, thought it was stupid while I was doing it. And in hindsight, yeah, I think it was stupid. Like, like learning, real, use, using real analysis to go and understand the economy. I just say, like, this is not helpful. It's just the, the most you would say for it is it keeps out lower IQ people. So it's like, all right, so we do something pointless other than just to keep out some people we don't like. But the idea that this is important material, saying no, it's not important material. So would you have, you would have just expanded that 15% or whatever that you did enjoy? Yeah. yeah I mean, you know, like, like during this whole time, I mean, the reason, honestly, that I have anything much at all to say is that I was just reading very widely and things that I did think were interesting. And that was the main thing I spent my time on. Definitely. As an undergraduate, I'd say I spent at least twice as much time in free reading as I did on coursework. High school, my high school was actually so labor intensive that I didn't have that much free time, honestly. I mean, it was just, it was Granada Hills High School, just a regular school, but I would say that you've got seven and a half hours uh, in school. And then usually I had 90 minutes to two and a half hours of homework every night. That was, uh, just didn't leave that much free time. And then in grad school there, probably I did about half and half. What does your reading diet look like these days for both for pleasure and for, for work? Like what is a, what does a practical reading diet look like for you and for, for working academics in general? I always wonder about that. For me, honestly, I've gotten to the point where I almost only read things that are directly relevant to the project that I'm working on. My projects are expansive, so that still gives me a lot of variety. But it's really unusual that someone just gives me a paper out of the blue, especially someone that I don't know. And I say, oh, goody, I'm going to go and learn about how steel mills were working in 18th century, Bel you know, 19th century Belgium, say. That's just, uh, in terms of stuff that I would read for fun, it's almost all graphic novels. This is a big hobby of mine. Even there, I feel like I've gone through so much of the canon and now it's a lot of work for me to find stuff that I consider actually good enough to read. So more often I'll get a book and say, seems pretty good. And like, ah, it's not actually very good. That's mostly where I am uh, in terms of like daily reading. I mean, other than Richard Hanenya and Robin, or, you know, Robin Hansen, Mike Humor, they're the main ones where I'll read almost anything that they put out. Uh, for other people, I've got to hear really good things about it, or we got to be talking about it at lunch or alternately uh, it's got to be, you know, you know, plug into what I'm working on as my main research project. You just mentioned Richard Hanania, and I, I also love mm -hmm. reading him. But you've got an you've got an essay in this compilation against trolling. Would you say that Richard trolls ever? Is he an exception to this? I don't oh, yeah, think he yeah, mostly yeah. does, but uh, but yeah. I think he does. Well, sometimes. so there's a big difference between his Substack and his Twitter. His Twitter there is. Yeah, yeah. He will very strongly admit that he is trolling people and he's just antagonizing people for the fun of it. Uh, I don't think that he's doing that on a Substack, uh, but yeah, on Twitter, that is, as I think you will admit, it is a platform that lends itself to coming up with pithy things that will antagonize others. 
you know, I think that it's, you know, he does it very well, but I think he himself would even agree it's not the best use of his time. It's more of something that he does for sadistic fun. Uh, <laughs> and I say, well, probably you should move beyond that. I mean, you know, like when I read it, it's like, all right, yeah, I can see why you're doing this. At the same time, um, seems like you are going out of your way to lose friends and alienate people. I, I relate with the urge, especially when I was younger. I don't relate with it as much anymore, but yeah, there, there yeah, is... yeah, that's exactly how I feel. So when I was a teenager, I deliberately antagonize people all the time. Probably my catchphrase when talking to my mom was literally, when will you get it through your thick skull? <laughs> Have you apologized to your mother, Brian? Did I ever? I guess, I, I guess the truth is I didn't. You know, the thing is, you know, she was also a, you know, she didn't use the word trolling, but she was definitely a troller for most of her life and would go and say things just to bother other people. You know, honestly, I think if I had, she would just have thrown it back in my face and one tried to bother me more. It's better to let sleeping dogs lie when a person has that attitude. Well, the context of this, at least that comes through in your in your collection is religion and being a, a young strident teenage atheist, as I think I was and I'm, I'm no longer. But you've got some great advice for such people that basically religious people will leave you alone if you leave them alone. And probably the big exception is being a child of religious parents or living in a strictly religious community. But once you're an adult and can do your own thing, and, and I've certainly found that to be true. Yeah. I have never felt antagonized by religious people for being an atheist. Yeah, I mean, it's almost amazing when you contrast how much unwanted woke propaganda you get as an adult versus how little unwanted religious propaganda you get as an adult. I mean, when I was a kid, it just didn't seem that way. It seemed like, well, like the, my whole life, I'm going to have to go and listen to some guy wearing this ridiculous costume going and telling me a bunch of stuff that seems wrong. But yeah, you grow up and then it's like, hey, where are these people? They're all in their own churches. I mean, probably a good way of thinking about this. There's a church near where I sometimes play tennis. Uh, it's a Catholic church and they have a big sign there that at least a while back said, you know, inactive Catholics re rediscover your faith. It's like, wow, what a hard sell, man. <laughs> <laughs> not we are the light of the world, not you believe this or you're going to hell, not come one, come all. Just like, if you believe this, but you're not doing anything with it, come here and we'll talk about it again. I grew like, up in a small mountain town in, in on the West Coast, so still <laughs> a progressive place in general. But the churches that they would post little daily quotes, you know, in front of them. And they, I could tell they always went out of their way to pick the more secular sounding quotes, the more <laughs> proverb sounding quotes that, mm -hmm. you know, not a lot of hellfire and stuff. And, and maybe yeah. it's different in, mm -hmm. in the South or the Midwest, but that's I certainly know, I've driven through trans. quite a bit of rural Tennessee and Kentucky now. I think I don't see much even there going on even there. Um, but yeah, like if you're a kid growing up in a very religious family, you may feel like they're just ramming down your throats and it's never going to end and it ends. Like you've got to stand up for yourself. Uh, if the family, your family is very strict, they may disown you, but that's really rare. Disowning almost only goes from kids to parents, not parents to kids. You are going to go and get a bunch of unwanted proselytization, but it's going to be almost entirely from the woke and woke affiliated ideas. That is so an interesting It's almost point. the only religion that still has the energy to go and hassle people. I think when I was younger, this isn't the case anymore, but what really, I don't know, drove home for me the point that religious propaganda is not mainstream by any stretch is that even when Disney was, you know, Disney movies were considered traditional and conservative, and maybe the left had objected to Disney movies and the messages they had. I don't think that's true anymore. But even when they did, you will look high and low for any explicit religious messages or, or 
imagery even. And I was trying to think like, where are the religious characters in, in classic Disney movies? There's like Friar Tuck in the Robin Hood movie, but it's, yeah. there's like nothing. I mean, you, you, uh, you have to go to your Cecil B. Demented or no, Cecil B. DeMille, not Cecil B. Demented, <laughs> Cecil B. DeMille biblical epics. And those have very strong Christian. And themes. that's quite old. Uh, you know, like they kept making those into the sixties actually. Uh, so, you know, it's so like, for example, we actually got to see a, the re-release uh, the theatrical re-release of the 10 commandments. And it included the intro from whoever was I think, the head of the studio that made it. And he had this whole talk saying, look, you know, this movie asked the great question, are we free men under God or are we slaves of the state? All right. So it's like, those are our choices. And, and you know, if you realize this is happening just a little bit after the McCarthy era, and presumably it resonated with a lot of people at the time. And it's like, hmm, uh, all right. Yeah, I still haven't seen any any of those classic biblical ethics. I haven't seen Ten Commandments they're, they're or good. The music, the, the music's good. Like, you have to be willing to accept a certain style of, of overacting that is seems hilarious uh, if you're not familiar with it. I do like, watch old movies. Can, I, that doesn't you, bother you me. You can really get, you can get used to it. I think if you're a theater oh, fan, you can you can overlook overacting if you're a theater fan in mm-hmm. films. Yeah, well, that's what I often tell people. The reason why early movies seem poorly acted to modern sensibilities is that these are theater actors who are switching over to the big screen. And in theater, you've got to overact because otherwise the audience is so far away from you, they can't even tell what you're feeling. And even more so back then, the ability of cameras to pick up nuance was not mm-hmm. half so good as it is now. I would say it's mostly that you just don't have the close-up in live theater. You don't have the close-up and you don't have the talent pool who's used to this particular art form. Yeah, so, you know, like people who are who are trained for the theater, they just switch over and use the same methods for cinema and it takes a while to realize I can really tone it down and it will come off as much more believable. I think the same thing is true of uh, radio actors. You have radio actors who moved into the talkies and mm. it, overacting over on radio is probably more called for because you have less you don't have the visual cues and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, you got. You may, maybe it's even more called for than live theater. At least with live theater, you can see body language. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you've got an essay where you list eight public crusades that you have lived through. So, first of all, I, what, what do you mean by a crusade? And my question is, how do you think the public at large tends to react to crusades, and how should they? What do I mean by a crusade? Really, any time that there's something going on in the news where. It just sounds like everyone's supposed to be really, con- really concerned and be on one side and take some kind of action, even if it's just putting a bumper sticker on your car. That's a crusade. So anytime there's some kind of unity, bipartisanship, we're all really worried about this. And you, know, like, we're, we're, you barely even mention the fact that anyone isn't worried about it other than to say that they're horrible, evil, whatever. Those are the crusades. Um, in terms of the reactions, I say, what do you get? Uh, well, starts with a stereo, like well, people lose their minds. Oh my God, this is so terrible. Oh my God, the Ayatollah Khomeini, he's taking hostages. Ah, and then hurting. The, namely, we've all got to get on the same page here. We can't be saying, ah, I don't think this is in the top 10 most important problems in the world. It's more symbolic, isn't it really? That's the other thing you're not supposed to do. So you've got to lose your mind in sync with all the other people losing their minds. Uh, what's striking is that usually the problem doesn't really get solved. But eventually, as I say in another essay, uh, ADHD saves us. And, the, the, and even though the problem persists, we, haven't, we don't really have much of a solution. We're just going to have to live with it. And yet the fact that people just get bored and lose interest and wander off means that we don't 
pile crusade under crusade to the point where we have like eight things we're simultaneously supposed to be freaking out about, which would be burdensome, as you can imagine. I mean, I'm, during I'm, COVID, you might recall that there was a period when you're supposed to be freaking out simultaneously about the horrors of COVID and the George Floyd incident. Now, there was one time there's like two mass panics. Everyone's got to be terrified and horrified. But they were the pulling each other in different directions. Yeah. In some ways. Well, don't we? Don't worry, because the herd will tell you what you're supposed to do. Namely, it uh, turns out that BLM protests are part of public health. Yes, Remember? I recall. Yeah, I haven't forgotten. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of public health. Uh, if you don't see that, then you are evil. So how do you react to crusades or how do you react to crusades on your better days? You know, just try to stay calm. Try not to. I mean, not only do I not try not to get angry about the thing, I try not to get angry about the people that are angry about the thing. This is my main kind of negativity that I experience is negativity about negativity. I have very little negativity about the world. I have this meta negativity about how people react to the world, which I try to control too. stay calm, put things in perspective. You know, like it's logically possible that it's the what people are freaking out about is terrible. Like if the nuclear missiles were flying, I think there'd be hysteria and hurting. And under those circumstances, I'd be like, oh, my God, at this time, it's actually happening. Time to go and get away from the cities as fast as I can with my kids so we don't die. Uh, but normally it's nothing like that. It's something that barely affects you personally. And you know, I mean, even COVID, it was mostly, you know, the main thing that affected almost uh, the vastly the vast majority was the reaction, not the thing itself. So you've got 0.3% of the population dies of it, usually people that were pretty close to death anyway. And then the other 99.7 are the ones where we're wearing masks and being socially isolated. And following, the, I mean, the thing that I feel like uh, affected me a lot was if I was doing anything in public, wanting to make sure I was aware of what was going to be asked of me or required of me mm -hmm. to not be kind of caught with my pants down where I can't do something or I have to do something in a way that makes it not worthwhile. I mean, for me, most of the time it was just playing dumb, <laughs> <laughs> just doing what I thought best and just you know, being an unconformist, just seeing like, are there people that are so fanatical, they're going to come up to a stranger and lecture them. This did happen to me a number of times, but quite rare, really. Yeah. I, I got I got a guy on an Italian train in 2022 when they still had mass requirements there, and I was ignoring them, and gave me a lecture featuring that classic Italian catchphrase, do you think I'm a stupid? <laughs> they love to say that, and you're just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to bite my tongue here, man. <laughs> and if you're ever in that situation, there's one word that magically resolves almost any dispute with an Italian, and that is basta. And that end, and there's like, okay, but you said the word basta. That's the end of it now. But what does it mean? <laughs> it means enough. Basta. Enough. Yeah, huh. It works. It's amazing. <laughs> well, and it's, I think there's a real cultural difference that you, you as an American or a Brit or whatever might overestimate the intensity of such a lecture because it's, it's a louder, more bombastic culture. Uh, I, I was, I well, was. I didn't see anyone else getting these lectures. It was just me. <laughs> I just know that when I was I was visiting Spain, visiting Italy and media stereotypes, uh, you know, I would see people that I was sure were fighting vigorously. And I think that they were arguing and then they'd laugh or shake hands or walk away or something. And uh, just so, just a lot of a lot of noise in a way that, you know, like a, a quiet Protestant household would not act. So you've you've got several essays. Uh, this is a broad point that I wanted to contrast with this essay where you make the claim that that I think is plausible that the media has a clear left wing bias and mm -hmm. like I'm I'm not sure that's wrong I think it's plausible but I'm 
I'm always skeptical without a more, I don't know, systematic analysis of, of how the media operates. But there, there's two things. One, there's a central example of media bias that you have mentioned, namely nationalism, which mm-hmm. seems to fit more along the right. And looking at your list of crusades, it seems like most of, well, a bare majority of them seem to be more right-wing crusades. The first five are mostly foreign policy crusades and the war on drugs, mm-hmm. uh, which are more right-wing. COVID, I don't know, bipartisan. Black Lives Matter, clearly left-wing. Financial well, crisis. I think, uh, I don't COVID, know. at st- the start, it seemed like it might be bipartisan, but it very quickly revealed it was nothing. It was very partisan. But we can go back to that if you're here, if you want. No, to. no, I, I think you're right about that. Maybe what I meant is it was not ideologically obvious in prospect, and it's still not obvious in retrospect why it should have been a left wing cause. Yeah. That feels to me like an obvious. So I think there actually is a good story about why COVID very quickly became left wing. I would have predicted and, it would be a right wing cause, but I, but yeah. so here's the thing. So I read the nation of you know, very left wing magazine quite regularly. And you know, even before the lockdown, you could tell they were just almost in jubilation of this because said like wage slavery will be over at least for a long time. And they do use the, the phrase wage slavery. It's like people won't, people will get paid by the government to not do their jobs. All we lose is this whole consumer culture that we don't like anyway. And government will be making a very aggressive trade-off of we're going to sacrifice everything else on the altar of safety, which is a very left-wing thing. So, you know, Ralph, Ralph Nader and other pro safety, uh, safetyism, it's uh, long been a very left-wing cause. So, I mean, I think basically if you just don't appreciate capital society, it's very easy to shut it down. And especially if you, that you combine it with thinking of work as a horrible imposition of a, of like, you know, really a brutal system, then one where you just get paid by the government to sit at home. It's their, almost their dream. I think my, my thought, and maybe these two things are just in conflict, is that a pandemic seems to activate reactions for anti-market bias in the way you just described. Mm-hmm which is applies to the left, but I was thinking more about anti-foreign bias. Mm-hmm. I'm referencing two biases yeah. Brian laid out in one mm-hmm. of his books, and maybe they just they just both work, but the, the market bias dominated. And, right. and frankly, the left is not all that pro-foreign anyway. So, yeah, I mean, the main thing I would say on the nationalism is that you're most likely to get a crusade when it's bipartisan. If both sides agree that something's got to be done, that's the strongest case. So I think that actually the Crusades where there's a debate, those are the, those are the livable ones because there's pushback. Uh, on the other hand, the Crusades where there's actually, or there's you know, bipartisan unity, those are the ones that are most oppressive, most scary. And uh, while it's true that there is a difference in nationalism, which uh, you can especially see in the rhetoric, but in terms of the actual view, I think that almost all human beings are nationalist. Here, there's the famous incident where the German Social Democrats, officially an internationalist Marxist party, when World War I broke out, they backed their own government. And, and then people like Lenin are like, how can you do this? You're supposed to be internationalist. And the answer is, yeah, hardly anyone's an internationalist. That's just cheap talk, lip service. In reality, German socialists are Germans first, socialists second, which in the same goes for human beings around the world. Would you say that also about, I, I recall a Soviet history professor when I was in school saying that any anytime the, the interests of the Russian state conflicted with the international workers, Stalin always went for the Russian state. I, I don't, I'm not competent mm-hmm. to uh, yeah, evaluate that claim. Yeah. yeah, I think that's, it would, it would have to be as someone like Stalin would conceive the interests of the Russian state. Sure, sure. Right? It's not like he's going to say Russian lives will be lost if we go and collectivize agriculture, so we couldn't possibly do it. That he was fine with. The, ru- but, the ruling elite. Yeah, but yes. But 
Uh, never, yeah, but yes, it is true that Stalin was much more interesting in consolidating power inside of the Soviet Union than going and supporting communist movements in other countries. Uh, he was happy to do that as a side gig. And when he saw, when and like the jackal, when he saw that he could grab a lot of extra territory with the help of local communist parties, he was very happy to do that. But yeah, it was you know, the idea that you know, did he revive great Russian nationalism, even though George himself is, I'm totally on board with that. Sure. So what do you think is a good positive case for the media in general having a left-wing bias despite nationalism as a central bias in the media? And just, I don't know, despite, you know, obviously people on the further left always hate when people say the media has a left-wing bias and they're like, the media has a corporate bias, yeah. the media has a, yeah. a, a yeah. capitalist bias. How do you respond to that? I'd say the easiest thing to do is just read the freaking headlines. So once I was actually at a dinner with Washington Post journalist Steve Perlstein, and I just said, look, obviously this is enormous left-wing bias. And he said, oh, you're making that up, Brian. And all right, fine. Let's get a newspaper in. Someone had a newspaper. Let's just go through the headlines. And say, Can you imagine a centrist, much less right-wing person writing that headline? And like even he couldn't really you know, say anything other than, well, well, the headlines don't really prove anything. Yeah, the headlines are the thing that people read. I think that proves a lot. It shows that their whole worldview is such. Um, so that's where I would start. You can also just look at the actual political breakdown of journalists. You can look at data on where they give their donations. Um, you know, there's also obviously public opinion. Um, but you know, like you look at all like, like so you know, all that aside, you can just look at the ways that different groups get treated and see the left-wing groups get a very special hands-off or you know, or kid gloves treatment that nobody else gets. You know, so for example, I remember about 20 years ago, there was new scientific evidence saying that it was harder for women over 40 to get pregnant than previously thought. The day that broke, they put on feminists onto the news to respond. It's like, how can they respond? What, do they have their own research on fertility? And all the, the, the response just consisted in, women are already well aware of these dangers. We shouldn't put any more pressure on women to have kids early. It's like, we have new evidence indicating the trade-off has changed. You don't have anything to say about that. And yet you are considered to be so anointed that, that you have to be brought on day one to go and give your theology to, so we can understand what we should, how we should react to the science. So I think you, like, you really can see this for anything that might touch on the toes of, or step on the toes of groups that left dislike. They, you know, their feelings are extremely important uh, for everybody else. Tough luck. You know, you're, you know, you're never going to see a piece about how gun owners feel threatened by gun control in mainstream media, whereas you will see pieces about how people, people who have, are longtime gun control activists, they feel scared. Hey, everyone, this is Chris Kaufman. Just want to take a quick break to tell you all I appreciate you so much for listening to the show. And it's still a new show, still a growing show. And if you want to help me out, I would greatly appreciate it simplest thing you could do is recommend it to a friend and give it a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Their algorithms rank the shows higher, make it more visible, make it more searchable if it has more star ratings, more reviews. So anything like that would be very, very helpful. Thank you so much. I appreciate you all. Back to the show. So the left is often accused of moral relativism. And you make mm -hmm. a interesting case that I've made before and that I, I really appreciate uh, that the right also falls victim to moral mm -hmm. relativism too. Mm -hmm. So how do yeah. conservatives 
fall prey to moral relativism and how is it different from the way leftists typically do? I mean, the most obvious one is apologizing for Columbus and other European committers of horrible atrocities and to say, well, you got to understand it's a different time. It's like, uh, yeah, you know, we can say the same thing about Hitler in World War II. You know, like, during Hitler's time, it was actually pretty normal to go and commit mass murder. He was, he, he would say he's a product of his time, or you could say the time's a product of Hitler. Both are true. So, but you, basically, if you just push things back, so this is why founding father, you know, so conservatives are not just Columbus, people like that, also apologists for founding fathers, despite being slave owners, apologists for, let's see, uh, you know, someone like Teddy Roosevelt would also get a, a pass from conservatives. Uh, so, you know, if when there are U.S. wars that you would know, like the uh, war against the Philippines after the Spanish-American War, where if you, when you just look at what happened, it's like they're killing hundreds of thousands of people so that they can turn it into a U.S. colony. Why? And yet you will get the, well, you've got to understand, you know, we can't apply modern standards to what they were doing back then. Anyway, you know, my view is, you know, not modern standards, but, you know, common sense moral standards that I believe were actually well understood by people at that time, too. It's just that it wasn't very convenient for them to apply those standards in those cases. You know, I don't think that in the time of Columbus, it was actually considered normal to go and find strangers and murder and enslave them. But it's like, well, yeah, but we got like some armed guys and some defenseless people here. And there's not really any modern media to go and point out what we're doing. So well, and on some level, it's charge. always been normal to treat out groups horribly. There's also pushback yeah. against also, it. I mean, let, 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 let me put it this way. Uh, it's not normal to treat all outgroups horribly. Uh, it's normal to treat a whole lot of outgroups very, oh, very well, and then finally there's a line that you cross. Right? So the society where people say, I treat my own, my own blood relatives well, everybody else, I can kill and enslave them. I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe very primitive societies are like that. Even there, they need to make, keep peace with, with other bands so that they can go and swap partners for marriage. Yeah, the line drawing about them. the in-group and out-group is is flexible, but something yeah. that fits that pattern seems to be fairly universal. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you know, although like even there, it's often like, well, out of like, who's the in-group? Everybody that I would ever see in real life. That's a pretty standard definition of the in-group. And then it's like, wow, so that's pretty expensive already. Everyone you would ever see in real life counts as the in-group. I think that's actually the default human standard. It's, it's pretty unusual to have a society where you regularly mingle, two groups regularly mingle, and both sides say, yeah, but we can kill that other group uh, anytime it's convenient. Well, what do you think is the motivation to, to give in to this kind of relativism? I mean, why not just say they're bad yeah. by a lot of standards and there are some good things yeah, to things. Yeah, there's two motivations for, rel for this relativism, especially historical relativism. One is people just want heroes. They're desperate for historical heroes. The more isolated you are, the more you feel like your particular political philosophy is rare, the more you, like the greater the scarcity of heroes, and you don't want to lose the few you've got. I know so many libertarians who just love the American Revolutionary War. And when I say, you know, like, it wasn't really a good war. There was like, like horrible atrocities. What was the point of it anyway? Things would have just settled their way out and things would have been about as libertarian either way. They don't like that because they want to go and be able to raise the, wave the flag of Thomas Jefferson or whatever. So that is one motive is just the desire to have heroes. And another one, which I think is especially pronounced now is just not wanting to give any concessions to the other side ever. It's like, look, if the left is attacking Columbus, we'll defend Columbus. That's also pretty common. Like, I'm just not going to give them one more inch, which 
I do kind of understand that you think, well, there's some slippery slope. Although here it's like, this is not a slippery slope of we, uh, you know, it's not, you know, it's not the kind of slippery slope where you are just making or you're making a concession. It's the one where you are actually saying something false, which I would say are quite different things. I think I'm predictably not sympathetic to the Columbus, to lionizing Columbus. I don't mm -hmm. think there's any temptation on the part of an individualist or a libertarian to see him as a hero or to see his project as anything related to freedom or or whatever. Y you can squint your eyes and say there's something broadly individualistic about Western civilization and Columbus has something to do with Western civilization. <laughs> Therefore, uh, the, the founders is, is a little bit trickier, uh, American founders. Uh, but again, I don't know. It's, it's seems easy. And here's what I'm sympathetic to about wanting to defend the, them despite horrible things is to say that I think Thomas Sowell uh, uh, emphasized this point a lot is that what's unique about this era in Western history is not the slavery and other things. Those are horrible mm -hmm. things as they have been always, but they're not, they're not specific or unique or special uh, in this context. Mm -hmm. What is special mm -hmm. is a large anti-slavery movement and a, a mm -hmm. movement for mm -hmm. independence. And those mm -hmm. things are worth celebrating. And some yeah. of the people uh, are guilty of the good and the bad, and that's complicated, mm -hmm. but we should emphasize the part of Western history that is unique and important, not the part that's just like every other horrible bit of history. And that's very sensible. So if you were to go and say, well, we're going to go, we're going to idolize the anti-slavery people. Great. While damning the, pro, the regular pro-slavery people. And even if you want to say, or look, the pro-slavery people were no worse than all the other pro-slavery people throughout history. And the anti-slavery people, on the other hand, they are walking on water because they're just almost unprecedented. That's where you want to go. Great. I think a lot of what's going on with the founding fathers is people want to say, well, look, they were slavers, but they also founded the greatest country in the world and on the principles of freedom. And that's where I want to say, you know what? Yeah, England was already practicing the principles of freedom to a very historically high extent. So I think really the way that I see the American Revolution is the first of the modern ideological, ideologically driven wars where you come up with some new philosophy and then say, okay, now we got to go and have a bloodbath in order to sort this out. I know a lot of people want to distinguish between the American and the French revolutions, but they're tied in a lot of ways. They're different, but they're also very connected, connected causally, definitely, because the French run up a big budget deficit in order to go and support the Americans, which then winds up being a big part of the initial meeting of the States General, which ends in 25 years of Europe bathed in blood. Always remember that. Uh, so like, you know, not just anti, you know, anti-French revolution, anti-Napoleonic wars. And I think the American revolution, even if it was great, just for its indirect effect on the French revolution, I think you'd wind up having to say it was a net negative and not by a small amount. That's an interesting point. What's the relevant distinction between the American and French revolutions in terms of their motivating ideals, or if not always motivating ideals, the ideals that they really ended up serving or that they devolved into? I'd say probably the easiest way of thinking about it is that the American revolutionaries put Locke way ahead of Rousseau and the French revolutionaries put Rousseau way ahead of Locke. Uh, Rousseau, I see as someone that is often perceived, misperceived as being another Enlightenment figure. He's actually a very staunch anti-Enlightenment figure. I think most people that actually work on Rousseau will agree with that or they'll just define the Enlightenment to include everything, one or the other. Uh, but you know, Rousseau, it's much more, uh, you know, it really is. It's a very totalitarian project 
of nation, the nation must come together and do whatever the nation thinks best. And the individuals need to get in line and so form ranks around their great nation. Uh, with Locke, there's, you know, there's more of an individual slavery going on, although even there, you know, like Locke is pro-conscription, for example. You know, <laughs> there's this bizarre passage in Locke where he says, look, the government can't take any of your property without your consent, but it can order a man to charge the mouth of a cannon. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> that's weird <laughs> yeah and and there's also i yeah i think pro- probably Locke's got a lot of great things to recommend him and and the the good stuff often gets excerpted by libertarians but there's there's plenty of weird yeah. stuff i mean you know he argues yeah. for religious toleration and then just right at the end it's like except for atheists and catholics more important catholics <laughs> right because they serve you know there's enough for doctrinally because they serve a foreign god and atheists again not doctrinally but because they just can't be trusted because they don't believe because they they don't believe in anything. I mean, you know, also very much worth worth pointing out that American Revolution is one of the first modern revolutions where you've got some big new ideas, and then you can see almost immediately that they do a bunch of things that are directly opposed to them without almost any sense of hypocrisy. So the dispossession of the American Indians starts happening real soon afterwards. It's like, um, what about all this life, liberty, and property stuff that doesn't apply to them? Well, you're like, oh, what are you crazy? No. <laughs> Right. You know, never mind the slavery stuff, you know, like, like that. The, the other big atrocity of the time is the, the mass murder and robbery of the Indians. Yeah. And and I don't know if, if you think this is accurate, but my impression from reading history and from reading some primary sources is that uh, at, for the founding generation, at least not Calhoun's generation or whatever, but for the founding generation, um, a lot of them, slavery is at least something that they're conflicted about. Yeah. Uh, or at least rhetorically conflicted. I don't yeah. know if Jefferson was really yeah. conflicted, but he yeah. he wrote as if he was. Okay, yes. that's something. Well, that's we know that he didn't free his slaves in this well. He didn't free his slaves, and uh, even George Washington, Washington did, by only the way, did so, it posthumously, yeah. and, and and not even posthumously, posthumously from when Martha died. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think she freed them because she was afraid that, like, ah, I don't like all these slaves being around whose freedom is contingent on my death. So let's just free him now. Um, but the, <laughs> I didn't know that that's, uh, that's news to me. He, he freed them in his will, uh, after Martha died, he wanted her to be cared for. Uh, and I, I, what I recall reading is that she was wise uh, enough to see that the incentives were not aligned and uh-huh. freed them a little prematurely. So good for her. But the point I was trying to make is that there's some conflict intellectually, rhetorically about slavery. I don't think there's much conflict about the treatment of the natives. They're just mm-hmm. the bad guys. If you read the declaration, you know, there's the part that Thomas Jefferson was asked to excise where he he basically says slavery is a big problem. But one of the other problems is that, you know, the Indians are savages and the King of England is uh, force, forcing them down our throat or something like that. There's no conflict about how they're treating the Indians. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, you know, obviously it is also true that Indians did bad stuff to, to colonists. I mean, the idea that if the relative powers were reversed, that the Indians would have behaved in a more moral way, that seems totally wrong. Uh, but still, yeah, I'm comfortable generally with the presumption that most societies' treatment of outsiders by their militaries and foreign policy is is usually bad, and yep. relative power probably explains mostly how much they actually get away with. Uh, let's talk about betting. You've got your betters oath in here. Uh, mm-hmm. What's the benefit of betting, and how how if at all has it? Hmm. Well, how did you get into the idea of betting? I don't. I, I'm. I'm not sure if you were always uh, a better on ideas, or if this is something that occurred to you at some point and has it reshaped your thinking. 
I owe it all to Robin Hanson and it has reshaped my thinking. So before I met Robin Hanson, I just didn't think about betting at all. Or if I did, I'd say, oh, you can't really have any bad about anything important. It's just like what's going to happen over this game of cards or whatever. Um, but you know, Robin Hanson, uh, you know, he's been working on betting markets from you know, about a decade before I met him. And he did get me thinking about it. And after a while and some soul searching, this makes total sense. And there are a lot of bets you can make which are relevant to bigger questions. And indeed, often it's the best way of getting to what's really going on. I mean, you know, like it, it sort of gets the question of, well, can you bet on, like, will the desocialization of the Soviet Union be a success? And it's like, you can't bet on that because that's too vague. You got to bet on more specific things. You got to define your terms, say what counts, give deadlines. And once you start doing that, you realize often that what you you figure out what you really think and you will discover maybe I don't even think something different from other people do. In the context of nonconformism, see, betting is what keeps the nonconformist honest. On the one hand, it makes you aware of opportunities. I am willing to go and say something that other people are, you know, will deny, and yet I'm right and they're wrong. But it also, by putting money up, it's like, are you really right? Are you really going to go and stick your neck out and say, me against the world, I put my money on me? Even reputation has, yeah. has, has yeah. A, a clarifying effect. Oh, a yeah. gentleman's bet. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's right. As long as it has those clear terms of, revolu- res- of resolution. So often the reputational bet is just things like, oh, this will be a failure. And it's like, okay. And then both sides declare that happened. I mean, one of the most dishonest versions of this is people who pick up the newspaper every day and say, ah, called it. It's like, what did you call? It's like, I said immigration would be a problem. And here's a story about immigrants. See, it's like, you didn't there say- There was a crime. You, yeah, you didn't say the magnitude of the problem. You didn't give a deadline. You get nothing for this. Quiet. And as all the less wrong folks are want to point out, if the reverse had happened, would you have felt like you weren't vindicated? Mm-hmm. Uh, probably not. Yes, yes, quite right. Especially if the reverse was, there's just no story. Yes. The number of times when people look at a newspaper, there's nothing about the about crime today. All right. Well, I guess that's a reason to worry less about crime then if it doesn't make the headlines. So you, you're better. You've got this better's oath, which is I, I don't want to say tongue in cheek. It's it's written. Uh, in in a in a fanciful style based on Game of Thrones, but I think it's it's sincere, uh, a nice oath you take to live by your bets and to take them seriously. But you end your better's oath saying, with a commitment to live by the oath for all time, unless something turns out to be wrong, which you assign a three percent chance. So, in uh, the intervening twelve years since you wrote the oath, have you revised your thinking on hmm. the oath or any part of it? It's a good question. I have observed more cases. You know, the main thing I've just observed is cases where people get so antagonized by the demand to bet that this really <laughs> shouldn't have brought it up in the first place. This is not helping anything. Uh, there's that. Um, I mean, I would say, actually, I've probably gotten more confident in the power of betting. You know, I, I'm, I was already highly confident, but it was just a little bit more so because there's just been more time for smart people to come up with objections. And their objections are just so bad. I have this running argument with Tyler Cowen where he has lost a couple of bets to me. To be fair, he actually won one or two private bets, but they were never publicized. So um, they don't get the same weight. But yeah, like we we had, I think, two bets on whether Osama bin Laden would be found by certain dates. And both times I thought he would be. He was found in the end, but um, him being like the bet was not he'll be found eventually. (laughs) The bet was that he'd be found by certain dates. But you know, Tyler has an argument that I just consider to be 
bizarre, where he says, look, your real bet is wherever you have invested your assets. It's like, all right. So we have to look at your retirement portfolio and that tells us what you really think. It's like, okay, so there's two people who both have most of their assets in stocks. What does this tell us about what they think about the dangers of Iran? I could see that it says something about your view of like short-term catastrophes or something. I, I don't see how it can tell you anything fine-grained, like yeah, when but, Osama bin Laden is going to be found. Yeah, you know, like, like you know, Tyler just says, like, oh, there's no need to bet because like whatever you have per- spent money on is a bet. And it's like, you, all right, fine. Look at my portfolio and tell me my beliefs now. If that's true, you should be able to look at my, at my, at, at my assets and, and infer my beliefs. And you can't. There's you can infer with, something. You yeah. just, I don't know that for you him. can infer a lot. For, him. For, you know, for us, like, for some, perhaps for some big way, like you might say, well, if you have a lot of stocks, you don't think that the, the, that the U.S. is going to get nuked. All right. Yeah. And people say stuff like that sometimes, or p- the way people talk about COVID or if Trump gets elected or, or whatever, and, and their behavior might belie just how catastrophic they think yeah. something is going to be. But I'm not sure what it tells you beyond really broad and, mm-hmm. and extreme claims. I mean, even there, often when you really think about it, there's a lot of very different conflicting views of the world that are equally consistent with the same asset purchases. So I don't think this made it in the book, but uh, after, so like when COVID hit early, I really was saying, like, do I stick with my normal, with my buy and hold strategy and investment strategy for 25 years? Or do I think this is such a weird event that it hasn't properly been reflected in market prices? And I very foolishly decided the second thing. And so I lost hundreds of thousands of dollars moving stocks into bonds. And it turned out I basically sold at the bottom. I bought back when they were only half recovered. So it wasn't a complete disaster, but it was definitely a disaster. Now, here's the thing. Suppose I, I, So I said, suppose that I knew with certainty what would happen to the real economy during COVID. If I had known with certainty what would happen to unemployment rates, what ha- would happen to business closures and everything else. Suppose I had known all of that. Then what would I have thought would have happened to stock markets? And I think if I had, I thought that I actually would have continued with my plan and say, well, if the real economy is going to tank that badly, the financial economy is going to tank really badly too. And that turned out to be totally wrong. You can have a tanking a real economy with a greatly rising financial economy. And so like, like you can just be very right about the facts of the world and very wrong about what will happen to prices because there's, there's, these are such subtle issues. So your your betters oath has all these features, and and I, I'm taking it you you don't feel like revising any of them. I I've got a candidate for a revision. Right. You commit. I don't know if this is an epistemic matter or a matter of honor or some combination, but to holding your tongue even if you lose, which I don't know that that seems overstated. It seems like there could be very good reasons to occasionally in extreme circumstances not hold your tongue. I mean politely, but. I mean, if you lose a bet based on, you know, a data set, you you have some economic bet about price levels or wages or something, and then maybe two years later, several much higher quality data series are released, and they all confirm that, that you were right based on the substance. I mean, do, do you feel like you're uh, going back on your on your oath if you if you point that out? I mean, I don't it, think well, you should say, say, it nah, 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 nah. say it at the beginning. But say, say you don't. Say you made a mistake. Or do you, or is it yeah. just a matter of honor or should yeah. you... Yeah, should yeah, you, yeah, yeah, you yeah. It, it, it is mostly a matter of honor. It's just saying, saying look, I really should have spoken up and talked about my my reservations beforehand. I'm not going to lose and then say I really won. 
mean, honestly, you know, it is more than just a matter of honor. I just think that you seem like a loser when you do that. I totally it's agree. Pathetic. I totally agree right. on on the the aesthetics and and the, the mm. virtue of being yes. a stand up I mean, guy. I, but I mean, like, I, mean I think I would also just say that most people, like on average, people who come up with reasons why they should have won that that they only think of after they lose. I just think on average. What they have to say is not worthwhile. And if you think what you have to say is worthwhile, you should probably think very hard about, hmm, is it really worthwhile or is it just some pathetic self-rationalization? I agree. And you should be skeptical of your own bias in, in that case. Yeah. And so maybe the, maybe the thing to do is, if it's really a good point, just sit back and let other people make it. Um, if, if, it's, yeah. if it's really apparent that you were right, despite the bet being poorly formulated, someone else will say it. And there's no great reason for you to yeah. be the one to say it. And you've kind of cut your credibility down. So let someone else do it. Maybe that's the solution. Yeah. One of the most egregious cases, I had a bet on unemployment with Tyler Cowen, where he said the U.S. unemployment rate would stay above 5% for 20 years. And it took him like, two years to lose. And after he lost, he said, well, no, really, I won because labor force participation hasn't returned. It's like, yeah. That wasn't what the bet was about. And definitely you uh, to say that you won a bet that uh, where there's 20 years, like, well, how about we wait to see what happens to labor force participation over 20 years? You know, never mind that any reasonable person would have predicted falling labor force participation based upon aging of the population. Yeah. Nothing to do with any of this weird technological stagnation stuff, which he got into at that time. So I recently read uh Goddess of the Market, uh, one of mm -hmm. the two Ayn Rand biographies that came out at, at a similar time and very exciting read, fun to read. And uh, it made me especially interested to read your essay on libertarian schisms. Ah. Um, and I, I think people who read or are interested in intellectual or political history are, are aware of the massive amounts of infighting amongst communists and socialists and the left more broadly, but might be surprised to learn that libertarians are very much guilty of it as well, probably on a less bloody scale. But uh, anyway, how, that's just because they don't have power. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully it's just because of that. I'd like yeah. to believe they, would, they wouldn't get bloody even if they did. But anyway, yeah. how do you see the problem of libertarian infighting and schisms and what are your proposed solutions? Yeah, very good question. I mean, like you said, it's a standard problem for any radical movement to get a lot of internal bad blood and treat people that almost agree with you as if they are servants of the devil. Now, uh, libertarians do it too. I mean, I wouldn't say that we're especially bad, but I don't think we're especially good either. Um, you know, like you say, well, psychologically it makes sense because the kind of person that gets into radical ideas is going to have a great self-confidence and iconoclasm, and they are ready to go and condemn the whole rest of the world. So why not condemn the people that are in the same room with them? So, but then once you realize these basic psychological tendencies, the sensible reaction is to say, all right, yeah, but are the, does it make sense to do this? Like, does it really make sense to go and speak as if someone that agrees with you 99% is the worst person in the world or is the dumbest person in the world or what have you? And yeah, it's, it's a silly thing. Uh, what I say in that essay is that there are different strategies you might take, but I think the least bad strategy is especially towards your own people that are close to you, just turn the other cheek. And even if they lash out at you, don't return the disfavor. Don't, you know, don't encourage other people that agree with you to go and, and make it bigger. Don't try to get other people to cut other people off. Instead, just try to minimize conflict, tone down. I mean, I think this is pretty good advice generally, but especially with people where you're so close, it really is almost demented to act like people who are that close to you are super terrible. There's a phrase that refers to this, like the 
I don't know the the tyranny of small differences or I don't. Yes, I, yes, yes. What is it? What phrase am I looking for? Yeah, uh, I believe that is. Uh, so actually, that appears in my current book that I'm working on, and I believe that it's Freud that uh, was the origin of it, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, but yeah, this is a, ve- a very common. This actually, uh, you're mentioning how like more ideological leftists look upon the media as corporatist. This is another nice example where you can be a lifelong Democrat. And yet still, there are people so left-wing who will say that you are no different from me. Uh, In my new book, I mentioned that there are a lot of leftists who talk about Larry Summers as if he's the same as Milton Friedman. You're all neoliberals, Brian. (laughs) Yeah, you're all neoliberals. Uh, I have another piece saying that for a lot of people, there's this undeserved compliment where neoliberal basically describes any common sense view is neoliberal, like (laughs) eventually you run out of money, that's neoliberal, or there's scarcity, that's neoliberal. Then I say, well, you know, I mean, it's really nice to get this undeserved compliment and to act as if the only people on earth that have two working eyes are libertarians, but it's not true. And there's plenty of moderate democratic economists, for example, who disagree with me on most on most thing most things, and yet will still say, yeah, obviously you can't inflate your way out of poverty. There's some socialist cartoon I saw about how the, the dangers of Democrats and how they'll smile to your face and then means test you behind your back. Or something like that. <laughs> yes, and uh, no doubt the people reading the cartoon are in such incredible need, and the means testing takes them the money that the they readers would, of the nation and the New Republic are, are notoriously yeah. poor, I'm sure. Right, and, and by the way, I mean the, this thing on purges and schisms, it does illustrate what I think of as the distinction between the nonconformist and the contrarian. The contrarian is the person who just reflexively disagrees with people for the purpose of disagreeing. The nonconformist is someone who just doesn't put much weight on the fact that most people think something. So a nonconformist can still go and believe normal things. The sky's blue. The contrarian is the one who will actually do something pretty silly and say, no, no, the sky's not blue. Wrong. Yeah. And that's a lot of what happens in Persian schisms is that there can be someone that is so close to you and yet you will treat this tiny difference as if it's the most important difference in the world. Well, and tiny difference. And you also point out a lot of it's just personality crashes. I mean, the the biggest... Split in objectivism was over a romantic qual- lovers quarrel. How dare you say that? You can't prove that happened. <laughs> it's. Uh, I mean, I'm young enough to have never known that it didn't happen. It, it, I, I never lived through this uh, fanciful, undefined idea that Nathaniel Brandon was kicked out of objectivism because I don't know he was a, yeah. a horrible person and a an ingrate and morally indefensible or whatever and a fraud. By the way, so you mentioned Goddess of the Market, which I believe is the Jennifer Burns biography. Correct. And I'm reading I, her I know Milton Friedman. I'm good, but I'm, like, I'm a much bigger fan, an extreme fan of the Ann Heller one, Ayn Rand and the World She Made. I'm going to read that too. Yeah. So that one, I would actually put say it is a hypnotic book. It's a book where we, once you get past the first hundred pages, it's like you lose contact with, with the rest of reality and you just get sucked into this world. Um, and you know, Ayn Rand, in a sense, was an extreme nonconformist, but you see that she did create this cult. What, what, what not only did it require extreme conformity, but it also required you to pretend to be a nonconformist the whole time, yes. which in a way is m- much more psychologically difficult. You know, there was, you know, then there's also this you know, doctrine of if you really understand objectivism, you'll be happy. And you have all these miserable people saying, oh, I'm super happy because otherwise if I wouldn't, it would mean I didn't understand objectivism, which I totally do. It's like, or maybe... Actually, the right philosophy doesn't have that big effect on your happiness and has more to do with having good relations with the people that you're close to, which you don't because you go out of your way to antagonize others. Could it be that? In, in her defense and in her in her more 
sober moments, I, I think there's something about that that Ayn Rand, I'm sure, recognized. I mean, I, I was yeah, surprised I mean, she, she totally recognized in theory, just denied the obvious reality of the cult that she had created, yeah. which, she, which you could look at with her own eyes. She, you know, she had this nonsense about it. Well, well, anyone who does, who, who like uh, turns subjectivism into religion will quickly drop out or become the leaders of the entire group. That's yeah. Yeah, I think I think being surrounded by, you know, young people looking up to her was probably not good for her already large ego. I, it's, it seemed like her her she already had that issue and her psychological issues were uh, a lot less extreme when she was also surrounded by people that she looked up to and was still learning. Yeah. Anyway, I'm excited to read the Heller book because I, I found Jennifer Burns's book fairly hypnotic, too. I, I felt like I couldn't put it down and I'm quite enjoying her book on Milton Friedman right now. I mean, Heller, I would compare it to Atlas Shrugged itself in terms of how hypnotic it is. If you've had the experience of just like not even being conscious of turning the pages anymore, you're so sucked into this strange world. Heller's book for me was like that. I mean, I just, I was reading it nonstop. I have a hard time with fiction, but I I did get pretty heavily sucked into Atlas Shrugged. Not the Fountainhead though. And Um, it did actually lead me to write these pieces on Rand versus evolutionary psychology where I said... You know, so basically, like Ayn Rand actually had a thing where, like, I, I don't really know much biology, so I'm not for or against the theory of evolution. Yeah. But anyway, I say that evolutionary psychology gives a very elegant explanation of everything that went wrong in her cult. That was included in this book? Um, you know, I think that's in, a, that's in a different one. I'm not sure whether it's come out yet or not, actually. I think okay. it will be in one of them. But, you know, things like she actually has this whole speech in uh, from Francisco D'Anconia about how the person you're attracted to will be the person that philosophically reflects you the most. I was thinking that too. And, and yeah. I don't, and, and it's like, so it's got nothing to do with their gender or like, no, 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 because uh, no, dad, right. Or like they're just sheer physical attractiveness, how they look, that doesn't have any effect. Philosophical compatibility matters. Great. True. Or but show me say, the person a man sleeps with and I'll tell you yeah. everything about his philosophy. Yeah. I, I'm not yeah. sure she talked honestly to a man ever. Yes. I mean, like you know, she herself, uh, according to, the conversations where we have to take other interested parties' words for it would say, well, you know, she like Brandon said, she was like, is it my age? So suggesting yeah. she was not completely cut off from normal human feelings. Yeah. yeah. And yet, like when she was giving that speech, it's like Darwin gives a way better story of who you're attracted to than this. You might be able to go and tweak Darwin just a little bit, but the idea that you're going to get rid of people are attracted to people that in the ancestral environment gave them offspring not going to get rid of that. That's true. You've got an essay called Get a Compound. It's a very interesting essay. And you, you argue that the drive for community and communitarian rhetoric is largely social desirability bias and people mm-hmm. saying what sounds good and that people don't actually want community, deep community that badly that mm-hmm. you say that, you know, people do, in fact, spend more money, substantially more money to live in nice neighborhoods, safe neighborhoods, uh, interesting, fun neighborhoods, but rarely to live in neighborhoods that are rich in solidarity and deep communitarian mm-hmm. spirit. So let's just stipulate that that's true. I, I'm a little bit agnostic about that, about whether that's actually true. I'm not sure how you, but it sounds plausible. Mm-hmm. But as a libertarian, I am, and, and I'm wondering if you are at least suspicious that part of the story is that the state really is undermining ways in which people might seek this kind of communitarian spirit and solidarity. And I'm I don't, it would take a real, you know, empirical project to uncover this, but I'm thinking of things like David Beto's research and how the state has undermined the the effectiveness of mutual aid societies or the usefulness of mutual aid societies mm-hmm. and things like 
the welfare state in general, undermining people's need for more informal community interdependence and mutual aid and public roads and highway systems, tearing apart communities. And there, there are books on this. What, what are your thoughts on that? I'm wondering if there is an, another part of this story. Yeah, so I like David Beto's stuff, but if you just take it at face value, what does it really show? It doesn't show that people intrinsically value community. It shows that they used to value it because it helped them achieve some functions. It let them achieve. Uh, it, was, it was a way of getting insurance or things like that in earlier periods. I'm taking for granted that the evolutionary yeah. psychology story is mm-hmm. make makes us desperately want social relation, good social relations, for among other strategic reasons that you have to cooperate to get anything done. You will die on your own. Right. Well, you know, I think it is true that human beings are naturally social, but um, it turns out that the just demonstrated preference, the you know, what people really want. So they want a romantic partner, they want kids, they want close friends, and then they want work associates who often wind up turning into your personal friends as well. What I do, and then finally, there's a bit of desire for, uh, you know, out of some part of the population to be part of a religious group. What I don't see is more than a very weak desire for any other kind of community. Um, like I was saying, like, like, so like the number of people that voluntarily attend any kind of patriotic meeting, it's pretty much zero in the United States, zero in almost any country that I know of. There just isn't much demand for that. You might go to a 4th of July parade, but that's it. Uh, the desire to be part of any kind of an ethnic group. Uh, you know, you may say, I thought you were going to go along the lines of discrimination laws have prevented people from doing this. I think that's part or, of the story too. Yeah, but I think that I think that's, again, a very weak force, uh, which, again, we don't have to speculate. We can just look at people's behavior. Here's the main thing. If there's a regulation that stops people from doing something they really want to do, people look for a way around it. Go and talk to any tax accountant. Right? There's a regulation saying you have to give the government a pile of money, and do people then say, yes, master, we will give you all our money? No, they go and they hire people and says, how can I make this number smaller? And they try, and they adjust their behavior, things like that. Uh, so even when there is a regulation that makes something harder, the question is, do we see people trying to get around it? Often there are actually a lot of easy ways around things. In the case of religion, there you know, there are religious exemptions built into the U.S. discrimination laws. You can go and have a Catholic-only community if you want. You can have a Jehovah's Witness community if you want. There just is very little demand for that. We've also seen that there are the 55 and better communities. You've got things like that. You're allowed to go and say whether, whether that you're not allowed to have kids in a community. So there are a bunch of things that are allowed, and yet we don't see people pushing very hard on this in order to go and actually reverse engineer the kind of communities that might be officially illegal. Uh, there's this great episode of The Simpsons where they go to the nice mall, and there's a big sign at the entry of the mall that says, "We dis- our prices discriminate because we can't. So yeah, like you can get a lot of homogeneity just with pricing, and yet you know, there's just not that much effort that, that people make to do it. And definitely in terms of just having informal meetings and things like this or clubs, not a big deal. I guess that's part of what I'm wondering is, I'm really not the person qualified to to make this judgment, but my thought about... David Beto's work is that I, I've heard him talk about how way too much research effort is put into studying labor unions for how uh-huh. numerically important they are, mm-hmm. and that vastly more ordinary people were a member of these mutual aid societies mm-hmm. than were ever yeah. a member of labor unions. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's a hugely understudied social phenomenon that seems yeah. like it very easily could be a, a somewhat secular version of church attendance of, of, a, mm-hmm. of a group of people helping each other in ways that are secular and practical with a little bit of religious or moral uh, add-ons or something like that. 
But maybe one of the bits of glue that was holding it together is this practical financial benefit that was yeah. essentially outlawed through insurance regulations or something. Yeah. I mean, I yeah, don't know I how mean, big a part I mean, of the let, story me, that let me put it this way. So if you repealed all of, all of these laws, I don't see mutual aid societies, friendly societies becoming important again, uh, which um, you know, I could be wrong, but it's just really hard to believe in a world where people don't even want to meet the other people in their apartment building, which is just true. Now, by the way, I say this even though I actually think I would really enjoy living in an intentional community as long as it was chosen by me. But, you know, if basically if the 12 houses on my street were all occupied by my 11 favorite families, I'd be really happy with it. Yeah. But you know who would not like that? My wife, because my wife would feel like I'm losing my privacy and they could like drop by at any time. You know, she wants a buffer and there's a lot more people like her than like me. I'm pushing back on this because I, you know, one, it, I'm thinking that if I see something that seems like a problem, my, my instinct is to say some, the state is causing this somehow. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe that's uh, the, the bigger part of the story is this isn't a real problem. It's a fake problem. Mm -hmm. But it seems real because I, I think it's real for me. And I, I don't live in an intentional community, but it's something I've researched. Most of them are unattractive because they're based on weird ideologies or religion, eco villages or something. Some seem to be just based on like the principle of being a good neighbor and having a friendly neighborhood. And that seems very attractive. But I do put a lot of effort into navigating and, and creating social activities for myself and playing Dungeons and Dragons. And I, I do a lot of social sure. dancing and yeah, exactly. <laughs> and anything, you know, uh, anything that it, that regularly puts me in contact with friends and family and, and doing fun social things seems like a great thing. And there's something very attractive about being in a community that is more conducive to that, to it not taking quite so much effort and, I suspect you know that I mean, I'm, I'm the same like way. That. So like, like I'm a big orga organizer of events. I do have to look in the mirror and admit, it seems like I'm the only one that does this. And I almost never get any, <laughs> there's almost no reciprocity. Number of times anyone invites me to any corresponding event of theirs is pretty much zero. And it's like, well, I guess if I want to have uh, any amount, an amount greater of the, of the, greater than zero of this in my life, I have to be the one that does it. Yeah, and my friend like, sent me a, a YouTube video about the like unfiltered version of a game night or something, which is everyone saying aloud their thoughts. And it seems like most people are just anxious about playing a game, anxious about competition, worried they're not going to understand the rules, only playing the game because the person who organized it seems to really like games. And I'm like, oh, man, am I guilty of that? Because I love to organize in, a good game night. Role-playing games are different in that normally it's a cooperative game from the, from the point of view of the players. So I think Role-playing games are quite yeah. different. Right. And I will say that, you know, I've been this way a long time. So I was the dungeon master for my high school D&D group. We played every Saturday night. We skipped prom. Not all of us, <laughs> but uh, we still, we, we played on prom night. I skipped prom, but I don't know what I did instead. Game went on for three years <laughs> and I was always recruiting, profiling. Like that person looks like a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I don't know how you felt back then, but at least, I mean, even when I was in high school, I, people who played tabletop role-playing games were, were genuinely closeted back then. It, it's a, never been a better time to play a tabletop role-playing game than today. Glad to hear it. So uh, what, what are some books or one or two books you might recommend to compliment You Will Not Stampede Me? Well, you got the classics. So you have Emerson's Essay on Self-Reliance, and you've got Thoreau's uh, Essay on the Duty of Civil Disobedience, as well as Walden. So there's a lot of great nonconformist poetry there. I mean, I say both of them are pretty short on arguments. They're different. Th they're quite different thinkers than me. I try to say, well, what would I say to someone that wasn't convinced? They're more poetic by normal standards. Of course, that makes them way better than I am. <laughs> Let's see. In terms of other things to read, 
Honestly, like almost any book that has a control that you know, says something that's different from most people are saying, in a sense, you need to be a bit of a nonconformist even to pick up the book and read it. I mean, Ayn Rand, you can, uh, while she was in practice a great enforcer of conformity, her writing comes off as very nonconformist. Uh, you probably know uh, George Smith, so you know he who died recently. Yes. He was, you know, I knew him in real life. He was quite a nonconformist, um, not just intellectually, but also in terms of how he lived his life. Let's see. So yeah, I guess I would start there. What would you recommend from from George? I, I'm only aware of one book he published, a collection of essays. Uh, I know he so like was it uh, Atheism, Ayn Rand, and Other Heresies? That's the one, yeah. Yeah, well, of course, there's his first book that he wrote when he was in his early 20s, Atheism, The Case Against God. Okay. That's actually his best known book by far. That's the one where Roy Childs went and got him a grant and then lived with him to make sure he actually wrote the book, <laughs> uh, The True Story. And did Roy, was Roy Childs the one who told him that he was great in philosophy, but he doesn't know any history and convinced him to do some serious reading in history? I don't know that. I don't remember that story, but it wouldn't surprise me. What about your your new projects? What's the next collection of essays and, and what's the queue of books? I, I know. The All right. So before any more essays come out, my next big original graphic novel will release in April. That's Build Baby Build, The Science and Ethics of Housing Regulation. Oh, that's exciting. It's going to be great. If you liked my open borders, I've got a different artist. At a very similar level of talent to Zach, um, ideally people, you know, he's not, you know, not nearly as well known as Zach, but the work is great. So I totally stand by that. And it takes all of the social science that people have been talking about on housing regulation and how much harm it's doing and how, why we can't have nice things because of housing regulation and tries to make it as entertaining as is possible. So sometimes my pitch for this book is it is the most fascinating book ever written on housing regulation, <laughs> which uh, you could say, well, it's not saying that much, but I am thrilled about the book coming out. I do think this is, in terms of domestic economic policy, it's the second most horrible set of domestic policies. It's one where government looks at the second most basic necessity, right? Food's the most basic necessity, right? And government normally does not try to go and strangle the food supply. But it takes a look at the second most basic necessity. Once you got food on a, on a desert island, what do you do next? You try to build a shelter. And government treats people that want to build housing like criminals. And the far more expensive uh, necessity. Yes. yes. Well, when you restrict supply, you raise price. And the list of complaints about housing is so long and so petty. It's like, oh, it's going to hurt some birds or box my light. Or they're like, shh. Those are... That they may be true, but they are trivial compared to the immense gains of building the housing. So stop this complaining and get government out of the way. Take a flamethrower of this regulation. It's terrible. All right. So that's the next one coming out. Then after that, uh, probably later this summer, there'll be the sixth book of collected essays. This one will be Self-Help is Like a Vaccine, Essays on Living Better. So this is a book of self-help essays. In a way, you can think of nonconformism as a particular kind of self-help that I'm really into. But anyway, this book is more generally on self-help. And then probably actually the next two books that come out will be the, the last two books of essays because those I can get out about two per year pretty easily uh, with minimal extra work from me. So they'll be You Have No Right to Your Culture, Essays on the Human Condition, and then finally a Pro-Market and Pro-Business, Essays on Laissez-Faire. And then after that, then maybe a year after that happens will be my next big university press book. I'm going to try to sell to Princeton, and that is Unbeatable, The Brutally Honest Case for Free Markets. This is the one that 
takes this concept of social desirability bias that we've been alluding to. Simple psychological concept just says that when the truth is ugly, people lie. And when lies become ubiquitous enough, people stop even thinking them as lying. And I say, this is the concept that explains why people underrate markets and overrate governments. Because markets do the good things that sound bad, government does the bad stuff that sounds good. And once we replace all of the lies with absolute candor, then and only then can we really understand not only why markets are so great and government so terrible, but also why it's so hard to win the argument. Because yes. the, correct argue, the intellectually sound argument sounds awful. Is this going to be a graphic gonna novel as well? I'm going to just say it anyway and say, look, we got to get the truth out there. Once the truth is out there, we can rack our heads of marketing. <laughs> really, my best marketing is it's honest. Honesty is really good. Stop lying because it sounds good. That's sort of the best case I can make. No more lies. Your marketing <laughs> appeals greatly to me, uh, but I, something more strident <laughs> appeals to a lot of people as well. Yeah, well, I mean, like it's I love you, man. Appreciate it. Um, I mean, I, I often think someone else is going to come along and will figure out a way to sell what I have said correctly, but in an, such an ugly manner. I mean, I think about there was this movie about the Lindbergh kidnapping and trial. And so let's see. The, HBO the actor, movie, the Stephen Ray? Stephen, the actor Stephen Rhea, he had to affect a German accent. Yeah. They kept showing this one highlight from the trial where he says, I'm not telling lies, you're telling lies. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, if we could somehow make that sound better. Yes. Like the best bulldozer I've got. And if you say, well, that's not too good. It's like, yeah, I know. Is this going to be a graphic novel as well? No, no. This is going to be a university press type book. Um, I, I feel like I want to get that higher level of, of seriousness there. I mean, could it become a graphic novel eventually? Sure. But I want to go and pitch this at a different intellectual level. Um, and of course, I'm, you know, I'm a huge fan of graphic novels, but sometimes you know, I, I still want to basically keep my, my feet in both pools. Okay. Well, uh, I, I think that's really exciting. You know, I think you're the modern Bastiat Hazlitt. All right. And I'm, I thank you. Appreciate it. Wanting to, I've been wanting you to write this book for years, actually not unbeatable specifically. I didn't know the title, but just mm -hmm. your general full throated case for laissez-faire and free markets yes. in book form. And, and against free. government. We also got to be really against government. Seems like realizing they, it's the only realistic alternative and that government does a lot of stuff. They they totally distort the way the market looks. If you look at the housing market as it is and say that's the free market, it's not. It is a, a market trying to move in a 400 pound suit of armor that it can't take off. Tell me if you've experienced this, but this, this shocked me. So uh, on X, I put out a promo clip of, of a past episode with you. And I chose a clip where you're talking about housing and you're giving the, the, your brief spiel. You've been writing Build Baby Build for a while. And I put it out there and I have never, I, I did also pay to boost it. So it got uh, an audience uh, that wasn't just my audience. And that uh, could be the entire story. But I was so shocked at the vitriol that that clip uh, garnered for <laughs> housing deregulation. I mean, not everyone, people, people were enjoying it, but I got the nastiest comments and I, immigration is a topic that inspires quite a lot of vitriol. Maybe this is too, but I don't know. Have you experienced that? No. Or was that a fluke? I pretty much, I've gotten zero angry emails about housing and I've gotten hundreds of angry emails about immigration. Okay. I'm quite surprised by your experience. Okay. Maybe it's when you pay to get it. They say they send it to the, to the people that would never hear about you except for the fact that you paid. Uh, I, I hope that that's the explanation because I was, I was shocked. 
Um, I didn't respond to any of them because I didn't even know what to say, but in any case, okay. Right. So that's your, that's your next project. So I'm, I'm very excited about that's that. Where can, where can people find you? So I've got my website, bcaplan.com, just B-C-A-P-L-A-N. And then I'm on Substack on betonit.substack.com. And then I'm on Twitter under Brian underscore Kaplan. Wonderful. Um, I, I, know, I also today. got a YouTube channel on top of that. So you can search under my name for the YouTube channel. Beautiful. So my guest today has been Brian Kaplan, and his book is You Will Not Stampede Me, Essays on Nonconformism. Brian, thanks so much for returning. Thanks very much. And by the way, of course, you can buy the book, the paperback of the book for only 12 bucks on Amazon, or you can get the ebook for $9.99. Despite really high inflation in recent years, I've kept the prices low. So buy early, buy often. Beautiful. I'll include a link to that. Brian, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.